Hey everybody, it's Tracy Brown from What Is Mine To Do, and you have uh, dialed in or logged in to participate in candid conversations. And we're doing candid conversations, really, they are candid, like there's no script, um, I'm just talking with a variety of people about their connection to What Is Mine To Do, what that means to them, how they feel about it, and any advice or um, tips that they have. And today I get to talk to Michael Lamar Raphael. And I am really excited because I know Michael, but I, because he's moved to a different state, I haven't seen him in a long time. So seeing him on camera today is making me really, really happy. Let me tell you a little bit, a tiny, tiny bit about Michael. He is an amazing husband, or actually, I guess. I should ask his wife that, but he is an amazing husband who is married to one of the most beautiful women in the entire world. He is the father of two boys who I can hardly believe are as old as they are. I still see them in my mind as like six and eight or eight and 10, and they are way beyond that now. He's a massage therapist, a Qigong artist, a musician, I mean, Michael Raphael is an amazing man, and I'm so glad that he's a part of the What Is Mine To Do community. So I want to jump in. We only have 30 minutes, so I want to jump in really with, you know, the, the groundwork of the What Is Mine To Do Facebook group is answering that question. What is mine to do to contribute to the end of race-based hatred and violence? So let's start there, and then we'll go into a lot of other places. Okay, so um, I think when considering what is mine to do with just about any topic, one of the things that I do is I, I ask, does this fit into my life purpose? Because if it's not, it's not really worth me investing a lot of time and energy and effort into it. And... Um, for me, I realized about 10 years ago or so that my life's purpose is to be a facilitator for healing, be it through massage therapy, as a Qigong teacher, a meditation leader, or um, musician. There's all sorts of things that I can do that are somehow connected to facilitating healing. Um, as far as with regards to uh, racial justice and inequality, um, I married 19 years ago, a beautiful black woman, and uh, we have two beautiful brown-skinned young teenage boys. Um, I was raised uh, to be colorblind, right? And um, the thing about being colorblind is you can sometimes be blind to the effects of racism as well, or how other people uh, are victimized by racism. And that was my experience. I, none of my friends were racist. Everybody in my little world wasn't racist or at least wasn't obviously racist. Um, and then I started dating my now wife and 
I realized that there was a lot more racism in society than I thought that there was because I, I was under the impression we're past all that now, right? Because mm-hmm. nobody I know is racist. So really, how many people are there? I mean, it's just some crazy KKK people, right? So, um, you know, I started hearing and actually witnessing uh, racism perpetrated against my wife. And um, it was you know, very eye-opening and disturbing. And I realized that we've still got a long ways to go. And, you know, this was before the election of Obama. And I knew that once Obama was elected, that didn't change anything. I thought that it would um, maybe help provide a role model for for black boys to have, to, to aspire to, to the greatest heights, you know, to say, there, there is nothing that you can't accomplish. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it didn't really level the playing field either. So there's the obstacles to reaching those heights are still there. And um, so that, you know, what is mine to do with regards to this? You know, I, it scares me to think about what might happen if one of my boys was to come in contact with the police without my being there. And, no one should have to be afraid of that. That's ridiculous. But it is very clear to me, or has become very clear to me, that there is a difference in the way that police treat people of darker skin color. And I don't believe that it's so much like a, a, a visceral hatred of black people. I believe, I want to believe I should say that it, it, it's more to do with just subtle biases that came to them through the media and perhaps through their police training videos that show the criminals as being black. Most of the news reports that we get about crime are black people. And so I think that that sort of leads police to see, and even black police officers to see, um, brown-skinned people as more suspect and to perhaps be a little bit more anxious around them, be a little bit more afraid around them. And when you're afraid and you're anxious and you're stressed, you're not going to respond well to situation. And I think that's largely what we're seeing in all these videos that are showing up. And I, it got to a point where I just, I said, I can't just sit and comment about it on Facebook anymore. I've got, I've got to do something because I mean, my, my son just, my oldest son just turned 18. So he's a, he's a young man now and I can't even begin to think about if something were to happen to him. Um, so I've got to fight for it. So I, I started, uh, looking for organizations that I could join. Um, I recently found a group called Surge, mm-hmm. S-U-R-J. It's showing up for racialjustice.org. Uh, they're a national organization, and someone just started a Miami chapter. And so I've been going to uh, – I went to the first meeting, and, and we're going to another meeting uh, here tomorrow evening, actually, in Miami. So. Um, we're going to, we're basically just getting the groundwork started. You know, what is, what is it that, 
we want to do as a group? Uh, how can we help the movement? Um, you know, what are our next steps as far as reaching out to other organizations in the area and figuring out what our part is in this fight? So one of the things that you mentioned, you know, going back 19 years, going back 20 years, when you first started dating your wife, you know, I think so many people are in that place of, I don't see blatant discrimination. So I assume that racism has been taken care of. But now in the last three or four years, in really the most recent years, more and more um, incidences are coming forward. And it's not that they weren't happening before. Many people have said, what's different now is everybody has a camera in their pocket with their cell phone. And so there's a lot more um, accessibility to what is happening, what has been happening. And I believe that is coming forward for us to really make conscious choices as individuals, as a nation, as, you know, communities. Who do we want to be? Today in Science of My Magazine, the, uh, David Alt is writing the messages this month. And one of the points he makes, so he talks about the Native American tradition that says what you do now is really for seven generations from now. You may not see the result, but you have to plant the seed now for seven generations. And what you were sharing, Michael, you know, makes it really clear, we can't wait for seven generations. You know, we, we cannot wait for seven generations. We have to be about planting the seed and taking action. So well, we're already seven generations, aren't we? I mean, I don't, I don't know how it, it hasn't even been that seven generations since, since slavery um, was ended. No, it hasn't. My great grandfather was a slave and my, yeah, my grandfather was born just after slavery uh, ended. And so it's, yeah, we're not seven generations from that. But it's, and we're focusing on race, but obviously in our society, this hatred and violence and mistrust is showing up um, with sexual orientation, it's showing up with different religious groups, it's showing up as a way our culture is, um, is expressing itself. And what is mine to do is just, you know, we're a small group of people saying, we're going to do something that changes, changes the mindset and changes the consciousness around this hatred and violence that's race-based. I well, often I think go ahead. Well, I often say you can never know someone's story just by looking at them, right? Everybody has a story and you'll never know what it is. So yeah, I'm really glad that you shared um, that part of your story because people would look at you and have no idea about um, you know your wife or your sons and that that's a part of your story and your everyday life yeah you know for me it's not it's it's not just something that I see on the TV or on the internet and get upset about because it's an injustice for me it's it's very personal 
And, uh, you know, I mean, just to, to illustrate some examples of the things that I have witnessed pers- personally, um, in Texas, I like to, I like to say that they have what is um, insidious racism. So it's hidden under the surface, right? Maybe in parts of Mississippi or Alabama, in some places, it's more obvious. Like, you know who the racist white people are. But uh, in Texas, everybody is, uh, puts on this nice face, which I think is great because, you know, here in Miami, there's, there's a lot less of even pretending to be friendly. So, um, but what's interesting is that, you know, we would be uh, pulling into a parking spot at the grocery store and uh, somebody else would be trying to get into that spot. But we had been there first and we were, you know, had been waiting longer. So we go to get in that spot and they get mad at us for what they perceive as taking their spot. And maybe they don't see me, but they see my wife driving. And so the first word out of their mouth is the N word. Now, if it had been me, they would have called me an a-hole or what have you, right? There would have been no mention of my race. So why isn't a black person, when they do something that upsets a white person, why aren't they an a-hole? Why aren't they a B-I-T, whatever, you know? I mean, some, some, you know, curse word or something like that. Why is it always that the color comes out then? Mm-hmm. You know, and that, that is a clue right there that racism is alive and well. They don't say it until they get angry. And then you hear it. And then you know who you're dealing with. Um, but also, I mean, we had some, some scary incidences. My wife was working a night job and she would come home late at night and, uh, she would pull, she would call me and she'd say, uh, a cop is following me again. And they would be like right on her bumper following her home at night at like two or three in the morning. And she would be afraid to get out of the car. They would come up and park right behind her when she pulled into our carport. Mm-hmm. And just sit there. Not come out and, and ask her if there's, you know, if she's lost or not come out and, and, you know, ask her what she's doing. Nothing. Just sit there as if trying to intimidate her. Now, I don't know if that was their intention or not, but that's the effect it had. And so I'd have to come out and get her. And as soon as they would see me, then they'd drive off. So I mean, these are these are just some you know minor examples, and there's there's worse, but it's it's something that is real. It's something that's out there, and white people look. When I lived in a in a in a part of the country where there weren't that many black people, and I didn't know that many black people, I wasn't thinking about racism because I wasn't exposed to racial differences that much. But I'm sure that those few black people that lived around that area could have told me if I had known them well enough. And I think that's really um, what we need to create a greater understanding between people of color and white people um, is that we need more interconnectedness, more talking with each other. Anybody who's white and has... Um, somebody that they're close to who's black. And I mean, has regular daily conversations with this person. Um, They're going to know that racism is real. 
Either that or you think that black people are lying. Yeah. Why can't we just take black people at their word? Why, why would they be lying about this? You know, there's right. a why would we want to make up a story and who would, right, you can't even make up some of the stuff that, that happens and you just know, right, it's happening. Um, but I, I love that point, Michael, that, you know, when you know someone of a group that's different from you or you know personally someone, and a lot of times people think because they have coworkers, I'm white and I have a coworker who's black and oh, I know that never happens. They never talk about it. But that's not personal relationship, right? That's not the same. I have black friends. When's the last time you had that black friend over for dinner? Right. Or when did you go to their neighborhood or their church or their, you know, somewhere where they are comfortable? Are they always coming to you? That's the misleading thing. How deep have your conversations gotten? Have you gotten into their pain? Have you gotten into your pain? Things that really bother you, things that upset you, um, things that have happened to you in your life uh, that have shaped part of who you are. And that's the thing. I mean, this, this affects, all of our experiences affect us. They shape us. And I can't begin to understand how it affects somebody with brown skin to go around and having people look at them as suspect on a regular basis or treating them differently or speaking to them disrespectfully. Um, I, I can't begin to imagine. And that in and of itself is the definition of white privilege. Mm -hmm. But um, you know, at, at least I recognize it, I guess. But something you said earlier, I think is important. You were talking about um, uh, people who are perhaps LGBT or, um, you know, people of, who are different. And that I think is what it all boils down to. It's group thinking. So we start with the ego, which is just thinking about ourselves. And then the ego expands into our, our family. Don't mess with my family. They're part of me, right? And then that group can sometimes expand into oh, um, the brotherhood of police if I'm a cop. Or if I'm a, um, a massage therapist, then, you know, massage therapist. Whatever it is that you consider as part of your identity, which is what your ego is, is how you define yourself. So if you see other people as being in the same identity category as you, uh, then you start to see them as part of your extended identity. And then it's always a, a sort of there's us and then there's them, the separation of the other, right? And that's basically what it all boils down to. And the problem is we're never going to get rid of that. That's part of human nature. From the day we're born, we start categorizing things. We start boxing things into here and there. This person is not me. This, you know, we start separating things in order to make sense of the chaos. And that's, that's human nature. But um, I just, I hope that we can somehow through conversation, real conversations, um, break through some of this thinking and, and get to the group think of humanity. Yeah, wouldn't that be great? 
And that, you know, the, this idea of candid conversations um, is not necessarily to solve everything, but to just take the, the, the back and forth that we've been having on Facebook as part of the Facebook group to just make it a little more real and to put a little bit of personality. You know, who are, who are we talking with in this group? Um, and share, you know, one or two things, like what's heavy on my heart today or what I've been working on or as you've done in this conversation. You know, here's a little bit of my backstory that you never would know if you just are seeing what I'm typing and, um, and just adding some life to it. I think it helps all of us realize we're more alike than we are different. And our differences, there's stuff behind our differences as well. Mm -hmm. um, I'm really glad to hear that you joined Surge and you had posted that in the group. And um, we're actually going to, I'm hoping to have a conversation with a couple of people who are Surge organizers uh, somewhere in the next few weeks. So we'll be talking more about that. It's absolutely a great group. For anyone anywhere around the U.S. Um, who wants to who wants to stand up or show up for racial justice, um, really good stuff happening with those groups. So I have a question for you, Michael. Because um, I know that you teach Qigong, and because I know that you. Um, are a very skilled and talented massage therapist. I'm just wondering if anything comes to mind for you that you've learned from those two practices that could help all of us who are doing this work maintain our own balance, stay in our hearts. Um, you know, when we get all riled up, what can we do that helps us not get battle fatigue? That's tricky. Um, Qigong is my, is my ultimate go-to. Um, just uh, taking a moment to be aware of uh, the energy and within me and around me. Um, but if you don't have that, I think perhaps the simplest practice is gratitude. And that's the other thing that I do when sometimes I'm feeling anxious or something. I, I, I go into a gratitude prayer. And it, it doesn't have to be to any particular um, entity outside of yourself or, or, or just to the universe in general. I'm grateful. And so I, 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 I start going down the list. I'm, I'm grateful for this breath. I'm grateful for this amazing, self-healing, healthy body. I'm grateful for this incredible mind and its connection to the infinite mind of God or of the universe, the all-knowingness of the universe. I am grateful for my expanding understanding and awareness of spirit and energy. I'm grateful for my wife. I'm grateful for my children. I'm grateful for this meal. I'm grateful for that I, I get to be a part of someone's healing journey today. I'm grateful for my clients. 
that uh, help me prosper as I help them heal. I, I just, you know, I just go down a list and, and I can go on for hours and hours about all the things, big and small, that I'm grateful for. And, and I think that when you do that and when you really not only just say the words, but think about it mm-hmm. internally and try to feel it, it changes everything. It changes how you feel. It changes how you express. It changes what you attract to your life. It, it changes your perception of everything around you so that you start noticing more things that you're grateful for rather than noticing the things that upset you and take you off balance, as you said. Yeah. So I've got uh, one final question. I'm looking at the time and we're. 30 minutes just goes by so fast. Um, So, you know, because I do know you and I do, you know, know what your sons look like, what strikes me about your sons is that absolutely they are brown skinned boys and they are, you know, handsome. But when people look at them, they can't put them in a box. You know, depending on who's looking at them, they don't know if they're, Latino, they don't know if they're black, they don't know if they're Ethiopian or Somalian or Caribbean, mm-hmm. Indian, yeah. right? Uh, I'm sure they get that a lot. And so, um, so I, I'm just curious when we think about the conversation about, you know, assumptions people make and, and race, either what do you tell your boys, what do you want your boys, your sons as you said, who are now young men, uh, what do you want them to know and what kind of world do we want to create for them? Well, my vision of the future is that um, a couple hundred years from now, we're all going to be some shade of beige, you know? (laughs) Uh, The, the, there's all sorts of interracial relationships happening. Um, so that's really the future of humanity, I think. Um, and that gives me hope. I also know that, uh, people in my children's generation, they don't really think about race that much. And when, and, and they don't really judge people that much based on race. And when you explain to children these days what racism is, they're usually very shocked and surprised. And they, they're like, how is that even a thing? That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard of. And I mean, when you're talking about like seven and eight-year-olds know it's stupid. You know, so um, I have great hope. But... Um, you know, I think my boys, uh, we've, this is something we've talked about for a long time. And when we first started talking about it, it was something that had never occurred to them because, you know, it was just, that was what they'd always known, you know, and, but they, you know, they get questions at school, like, what, what are you, you know, and what is that? And, and, um, it's uh, their friends are always surprised to see when myself or 
uh, Roxanne show up at school and they're like, Oh, okay. Now I'm starting to see the, where that comes from. But, um, I think that, uh, I'm sorry. I, I, I kind of forgot what your original question was. Oh, no, just you're going there. Like, what do you tell them? Or, and, or I love how you said my vision for, you know, what, what, what kind of world with what is mine to do? What are we working for? What are we working toward for your sons? So, uh, you know, that, and that's something that someone on the What Is Mine To Do Facebook page pointed out. Um, Amphrey, I, I believe, he said that he can't really envision a world without racism. And, and I can. I can. And I think that's because I've known that world, right? I lived in that little bubble where I thought there wasn't racism. Um, and it, so I think it's really important that white people take ownership of this issue. That, and that's not to say that we should pull the rug out from under the leadership of, of, of uh, Black Lives Matter and other Black-led uh, organizations. But this problem started with white people. It's been perpetuated by white people. And it's only gonna, it, it's, it's gonna be solved by white politicians making changes to the laws. Because that's mostly who our politicians are. They're mostly white. And they're going to respond when white people show up. Because black people are only 10% of the voting populace. They can continue to treat them as a small little minority voting block. But when white people show up in mass, then suddenly it gets real for white politicians. They're like, oh, my bread and butter's here. And they're mad. You know? So um, I think that's, that's important. But I think it, eventually we want to get to a point where we aren't concerned about who's black and who's white. We all live together in communities. We all go to church together, like at CSL. We, it's a very diverse community. And I just want to see our neighborhoods look like that. I, you know, I want to see an end to the sort of geographic segregation that we see in cities so often. And um, that's kind of my vision is, is more communities in America. Because we lost that. We used to be a country of communities, and we lost that. And now nobody talks to their neighbors. So you don't really know what's going on in their lives, what, no matter what color they are. And, and no one can ask for help from their neighbors because they don't know them. And that, it, it, we used to work together, you know? We used to know each other. And I think that we need to get back to that. And I, I, there are ways that we can do that. And I've seen ways that we can do that. And I think that we will eventually move in that direction. But we, I, I think we have to set aside this idea of this uh, rugged independence in America, where you pull yourself up from your own boot, by your own bootstraps. That's a myth. That doesn't exist anymore. 
that used to be true a long time ago that you could that you could possibly do that when you could actually work your way through college but now you can't do that so um we are all in this together and i think uh, the movement needs to recognize that and we need to speak together with one voice of all colors and not uh i think in the movement within the movement i i i hope that we don't see racial divisions within the movement i i love the the pictures and the videos that i've seen of martin luther king and other black people marching hand in hand with white people and just all mixed in together and i think that that's the face that the movement needs to present to America because that is has to be our future. It has to be. If not, this dream of our founders will never be fully realized. This this dream of, that we that they spoke of in the Constitution of equality for all, equal protection under the law. It's it will never be realized, and that would be a shame. So, yes, it would be a shame. And our job is to answer the question, what is mine to do to help move us toward that? Our time really is up. Um, I, I, maybe we'll do a part two in a couple of weeks or, or so. Um, the goal of this, these candid conversations really, is to put a face and a voice to all of the conversations that we're having online and to encourage everyone to answer the question, what is mine to do for themselves? So Michael, I really appreciate you jumping online and saying yes and sharing a little bit of your story. I love the vision that you have for your family and for the world. And um, I would love to invite you to post a picture of your family in the group so folks who are watching the video can get a broader understanding of what you've described so well. And that's all the time we have. We'll see everybody on, um, on Facebook at What Is Mine To Do, or you can go to the website whatismindtodo.com and get a link to Facebook. Thanks again. Talk soon. Bye for Love now. You.